Hello, friends. I want to tell you a story, a legend really, about an African princess. The way some tell it, she was the daughter of a great pharaoh. She married and had a son, the firstborn son of a patriarch who had proven himself in many battles, the one God had promised would be the father of nations. She named her son as an angel told her to do, God hears me. While those around her clung to the idea that no one could ever look on the face of God and live, and even their most esteemed prophet would only ever see the retreating back of God, she had more than once met God in the wilderness and they had spoken. She had seen God face to face and not only did she live, she thrived. So she named God also, El Roy, God sees me. She returned to her own native land of Egypt when her son was a lad, and she handpicked his wife from her own people. Together, she and her son became a family who this day number two billion. And now hear this story about a handmaiden, an enslaved young woman handed over to the husband of her enslaver to be a surrogate, to bear a child for them. Both the handmaiden and the wife were suffering under a extremely patriarchal society and were pitted against each other, but for the enslaved young woman, life was incredibly hard. She was mistreated and abused. She once attempted to flee and then later was finally driven out. She experienced starvation in the wilderness. And most of the artwork that shows her to this day is of the scene where she is sure her baby will die of dehydration in the desert, so she puts him under a bush so she doesn't have to watch. Of course, it is then that God appears to her. But finally free, she's on her own, raising her child. Her story is overshadowed by the story of her captors and abusers. We don't know much more about her after this. So the story that is told in the rest of the Bible is their story, not hers. Her situation is far from unique. It's sadly commonplace wherever women are enslaved. Margaret Atwood reimagined her story as a post-apocalyptic tale in the novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Now it is a TV show too terrifying for most people to watch. The matriarch of many nations, daughter of Pharaoh, African princess, and enslaved young handmaiden, both Hagar of the Bible. She is both the royal mother of the Muslim faith and the fugitive, fleeing for her life whose son seemed to be just a placeholder in the story until God's covenant with Abraham through Isaac via Sarah could be fulfilled. Which version of the story we hear, of course, depends on who is telling it and which details they choose to focus on. Let's listen for the word of God in the scripture. From Genesis chapter 21. So this picks up where we left off with David's sermon from last week, Sarah has been told she will have a son and she will name him Isaac, laughter. And the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Do you see how he's laughing? He's almost stolen the name of Isaac, whose name means laughter. And this just incenses her to see this son who she initially wanted and now she sees as an imposter. She becomes angry. 
She says to Abraham, drive out this slave girl and her son, for the slave girl's son shall not inherit with my son, with Isaac. And the thing seemed evil in Abraham's eyes because of his son. And God said to Abraham, let it not seem evil in your eyes on account of the lad and on account of your slave girl. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her voice, for through Isaac shall your seed be acclaimed. But the slave girl's son too, I will make into a nation, for he is your seed. And Abraham rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water. He gave them to Hagar, placing them on her shoulder. And he gave her the child and sent her away. And she went wandering through the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she flung the child under one of the bushes and went off and sat down. She sat down at a distance, a bow shot away, for she thought, let me not see when the child dies. And she sat at a distance and raised her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and God's messenger called out from the heavens and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the lad's voice where he is. Rise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand for a great nation I will make of him. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the lad to drink. And God was with the lad. And he grew up and he dwelled in the wilderness and he became a seasoned bowman. He dwelled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took for him a wife from the land of Egypt. Here ends the reading. So if you ever took a creative writing class, your professor probably would have challenged you with a point of view piece where you try to write a story from a point of view other than your own. It's a good challenge and it stretches your imagination. I think we could practice this in our own lives. It's a good practice for um, getting at the root of empathy. Can you imagine yourself in someone else's shoes or sandals? Can you imagine yourself perpetually barefoot? So here is the story we tell in the Bible. That story of Hagar is told from someone else's point of view, but there is a, so much in there about how we can reinterpret re it and understand it from Hagar's own point of view. Here's another story we usually tell about the Bible, and we simplify this a bit. We would say that the New Testament is the story of how we, as Gentiles, as followers of Jesus, have been grafted on to the covenant Abraham and God had made. That line that goes through Isaac and Jacob, we are like this. If you imagine a branch, and this really does work, you can put a slice in a tree branch and attach another uh, sprig to it and that branch will grow out of the side and will have attributes of both of those um, original trees. But this is a story about a tree and maybe you'll see one if you take a walk today that sort of has twin trunks. This is the story of the base of that tree that has a solid strong root foundation and starts out with one solid trunk and then it splits in two and grows up in two divergent directions. So Hagar is the split, Hagar and her son Ishmael, and the Bible story moves on without her, and it's not surprising. I think many of you don't know nearly as much about a great aunt as you do about her sister, your grandmother. It's left for the descendants of Ishmael, Muslims who trace their lineage through him, to celebrate her and tell her story the way they do in the first version. 
the daughter of a great pharaoh who joined Abraham's family when he was a sojourner in Egypt and who left with them on their way and who the Bible does tell us this part of the story too, who did have his firstborn son and God did promise her he would make a great nation of that son. So here's the very same story told the way we know it best. And I think this is how you know it. And you'll have to forgive me. Sometimes I just start singing when I'm preaching. Father Abraham had many kids or many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right? That's the version we know. And this is the simplified version that we tell about Abraham. We turn him into an Aesop's fable a moralizing lesson. We say, Abraham was a good and righteous man. He trusted God. He trusted that God would lead him out from the homeland he had known and take him on a journey into a place he had never seen before. And he, even though he had no children, into his old age, he trusted that God's promise would come true and that God would make a great nation of him, that he would have more descendants than he could count, more numerous than the stars in the sky. And we are all those descendants. So we simplify his story. Abraham had faith. Abraham trusted God and good things happened for him. Be like Abraham, right? That's a pretty simplified reductionist version. And I'm not really sure why we decided that was the way we were supposed to read this story. I don't really know where we got that. But it reminds me of another story we've been challenging finally, thank God, in these days. We are trying to re-examine the story so many of us have been told about the Founding Fathers, right? We simplify that. We say they had this vision for a new country that was based on equality for all people. And we say they wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, right? And we say this vision came true. It turned out so well. If we have privilege, we look around and we think, well, that worked out so well. Let's keep using those Founding Fathers as a model. A, um, a church member, Michelle Walker, just shared with everybody this quote, another story that we tell ourselves. She reposted this um, tweet. It says, American history books are like, slavery was bad, but then Lincoln fixed it. Then segregation, also bad. Malcolm X didn't need to be so mean about it, but then MLK went on a big walk and fixed racism. The last racist left killed him but then he went to jail. The end. Wow. That, and you know what? It is pretty true. I think that is the message kids are getting in their American history classes these days. Completely reductionist, completely unhelpful. So again, I don't know where we got this idea. If we look at the book of Genesis, what happens? In the very first generation, these people God created, these mud beings, he gave them one rule. Do not eat from this one tree. And of course they did that. In the second generation, fratricide, Cain and Abel, the two brothers. In the next generations, in the, in the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they've already enslaved people. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they've waged wars. And the worst part, maybe not the worst part, but one of the frustrating parts is these stories are retold and retold and retold while they make the same mistakes over and over again. They're just not learning. If anything, the story is really about God's faithfulness to us for no other reason than that God is faithful. It reminds me of the line, what are mortals that you should love them? 
what are human beings that you should care about them. But God does love us and God sticks with us. America's story should be about the perseverance of the people who were left out and how they were fighting for their own freedom, how they are fighting still. That story is the one that should be told first. But again, back to Hagar, it's all about which point of view, which narrator, who are we listening to? So I think today we need to return to Hagar and follow along with her point of view. The Bible story is so rich when it turns to her story before it leaves her behind. She's a model for anyone who's experienced a trauma and not because she not only survived, but she thrived. We need her story today because as people and as a whole nation, we are poised to grow from our past trauma. I'm sure you've all heard of PTSD, but I bet many of you have not heard of this concept, post-traumatic growth. I found this article yesterday. It says, so there's no sugarcoating it. Life sometimes hurts. Losses, heartbreaks, setbacks of all kinds, they can rock us to our core. Feeling bad after your life is upended is totally normal, says Sarah Lowe, PhD, assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at the Yale School of Public Health. But humans are also programmed to be resilient, to learn and grow even from difficult things. We sing in one of our favorite songs in this congregation, the God of Abraham praise. We sing that God has eternal life implanted in our soul. And we also know that God has this ability for us to experience resurrection and new growth, even after trauma. This is the whole story of the crucifixion. Even after the cross, there is new life. And that's the same for each of us in our lives. So these psychologists are studying the possibilities of what they call post-traumatic growth, that surviving hard periods in life can often leave us more focused, more compassionate, more spiritual, more aware of our own strengths and possibilities. The article continues, a multi-year study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that the emotionally healthiest people have experienced some kind of significant adversity, such as a divorce, the loss of a loved one, or a grave illness. These events can shake us and strip away our assumptions they push you to re-examine what's most important, says one of the clinical psychologists. You learn things about yourself if you, that you never would if life was all clear sailing. And that's not to diminish the suffering that such events cause. Pain and growth can coexist. So sometimes, and we see this in the story of Hagar, it is in that place in the wilderness where God meets her, and it's where God can meet us too. So we have to stay open to the idea that Things aren't going the way we would have wanted them to. And it doesn't mean we can say it's necessarily the way God wanted them to go either. We all have free will. And sometimes the hard things we go through are a result of our own choices or maybe the choices of someone else that we've had no control over. They could be a result of a natural disaster like this pandemic. But just because you're going through the struggle, you enter this period of wilderness and it's there where you can find this possibility for growth and ultimately healing. If you, any of you have had surgery and you have a scar, you'll know that your scar tissue is the strongest tissue on your whole body. And wherever you are healed, you can bring healing. 
So we say that God wants us to have life and have it abundantly. That's one of the messages of the gospel. God wants our liberation so that we can live our lives to the fullest. But if we stop there with just ourselves, we forget that God wants liberation for all of us. And it's true. No one can be free unless we are all free. So the story of liberation, of growth, of resurrection after trauma is God's story. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And we would be mistaken if we thought that meant follow me toward crucifixion. It really means follow me all the way through the crucifixion, through the pain and the trauma, through to the resurrection on the other side. So I want to share with you a passage that I read in a book that was just recently published. It's the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I hope you're familiar with her writings. She's really had an incredible life story and she's written a number of memoirs. And so this is about a conversation she had with her wife, Abby. Now, her wife, Abby, is a famous soccer player who, if you don't know Glennon Doyle, some people know Glennon Doyle and some people know Abby Wambach. She is a, um, a famous soccer player. So they were sitting together in a minister's office and Abby started to open up about what it was like for her to be a little girl in the church and realizing that she was gay and she was not growing up in an open and affirming church like ours is. So she said, this is a conversation these two women are having in a minister's office. Abby says, when I was little, I knew I was gay and I had to choose my mom and God and the church or myself. And I chose myself. And the minister said to her, damn right. But Glennon stopped both of them. See, she knew we needed to retell this story, just like we need to retell Hagar's story and look for the liberation in it. So she says, damn right isn't exactly it. And Glennon turns to Abby, and this is what she says to her. She says, babe, wait, yes, when you were little, your heart turned away from the church in order to protect itself, but you remained whole instead of letting them dismember you. You held on to who you were born to be instead of contorting yourself into who they told you to be. And a lot of this book, Untamed, is about how Glennon had contorted herself into being someone she wasn't to make other people happy. And that was not Abby's story. So she said, you stayed true to yourself instead of abandoning yourself. And when you shut down your heart to that church, the church that told her that she was not loved and accepted the way she was, she says, you did it to protect God in you. You did it to keep your wild. You thought that decision made you bad, but that decision made you holy. She said, when you were little, you did not choose yourself instead of God and the church. You chose yourself and God instead of that church. When you chose yourself, you chose God. When you walked away from church, you took God with you. God is in you. And then she says, tonight, you, me, and God, we're just visiting church. We came back to visit, to offer these folks here hope by telling stories about brave people like you who fight their whole lives to stay as whole and as free as God made them. When we're done tonight, you and I will go, and God will go with us. It gives me chills reading this conversation between these two women. I love it so much. And what matters to me in the story of Hagar, when I read it for us today, is exactly this. The way Abraham and Sarah told it, and this is the version that we focus on so much, Hagar was expendable. She was non-essential once they had their own son together. So they said they had God, 
They had their covenant, they had Isaac, and they didn't need Hagar and Ishmael anymore. So they sent her away. But when she walked away, and we see this in the text, God went with her. It was the same with Abby and Glennon. Anyone who's forced, anyone who is forced to walk away, whether it be from a church that doesn't welcome them or a family that doesn't love them or a way of thinking that's just reductionist and therefore wrong and not supporting the, the freedom and the liberation and the life of all people, God goes with you when you leave that place. It's not that God goes looking for the lost sheep. That's just the view of the 99 who are left safe in the pen. That's just their point of view. When a sheep has to leave the fold, for whatever reason, the shepherd goes with it. Leaving the fold might be the most faithful thing you can do. Hagar left her situation and went to one where she could thrive, and God went with her. What does God say to her in the wilderness? God hears her son crying. God hears her, and he says to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God hears you, and God is with them, and God makes promises to them, and those promises come true for them. God goes with them. This is post-traumatic growth, and it's possible for all of us. And I don't presume to know the different ways this might be manifest in your own life, but I see how it's working for all of us as a nation. I think a lot of us, need to leave the fold of white supremacy, and God will go with us. Many of us need to read a different history of our own people, and if it's a true history, if it's about liberation for everyone after taking a hard look at what really went on, God will be in that learning. God will go with you to that new understanding. Maybe there are places in your own life story that you've let other people tell And it's time for you to retell those stories like Abby and Glennon do together so that they support your own healing and your own growth. Maybe it's a good time for you to listen to someone else tell their story. Maybe you can remind someone who's brave enough to open up to you. You can remind them of Hagar, the matriarch, the one who named God, God who sees me, the one who took God with her. Maybe you know someone who's going on a hard journey now. You can remind them that God goes with them, that God has implanted resilience and resurrection in their very souls. So as a nation, we are poised for post-traumatic growth. Growth as a whole people. May God go with us into this new understanding. And may you tell new stories. May you hear new stories. And may God go with you. Amen.